I'm Cassidy Hall. I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Today on Encountering Silence, we are pleased to have with us Paula Price. Paula Price is an anthropologist who teaches at the University of British Columbia. She received her PhD in anthropology from Boston University in 2015, and her dissertation formed the basis of her book, The Monk's Cell, Ritual and Knowledge in American Contemplative Christianity, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. This book, based on nearly four years of ethnographic research, is the first ethnography of monastic, semi-monastic, and contemplative communities in America. The book explores how religious practitioners in both monastic settings and the larger Christian contemplative community combine social action and intentional living with intellectual study and intensive contemplative practices in an effort to modify their ways of knowing, sensing, and experiencing the world. Welcome to Encountering Silence, Paula. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So oftentimes when we begin these conversations, we like to give a a chance for the person who's come on to give a little bit of a background, their connection with silence. This topic uh, on our podcast is very broadly defined. We do not mean no noise. We mean Something close to what you say at the end of the bio there, a way of sensing and knowing and performing and experiencing the world. And there's a lot of different aspects to that. So I guess what I'd like to start with is, do you recall a time in your childhood or maybe it doesn't have to be childhood or a place where you can mark in your personal life a kind of engagement with or encountering silence that stands out for you, that you see as important for forming you? I must say that I don't think there was a beginning. Mm. Um, Excellent. Because I I grew up in a household that honored and practiced silence all the time. Mm. Both of my parents were meditators as long as I can remember. And I was taught to meditate uh, at four years old. Oh, but wow. before that, I... I mean, I I think it was just part of the cultural aesthetic of our household, and mm-hmm. it was a deeply honored and cherished and seen as uh, there was no silence that was negative <laughs> that I <laughs> that I can remember. And I know uh, in my profession, um, silence is often construed in a negative way, and of course there are negative silences, mm-hmm. but that's not my first understanding of it. But if you want a first memory, mm. um, you know, it goes all the way back to the crib. I remember lying in my crib, looking up, I must have been waking up from an afternoon nap or something like that. 
perhaps I was two, I'm not sure. Mm. Um, but it was a, one of those beautiful golden afternoons in this in the late summer, and the, the golden light was streaming through the curtains. And I remember just lying in this kind of bliss of golden light. And I, I mean, I don't think of it so much in association with silence, but but it, that's how I view silence in, mm. in so many ways. I I don't mean to be kind of Pollyanna-ish of it uh, about it, but it it really is kind of the fundamental ground on which I stand, um, and that's uh, I'm sure so much to do with my parents forming it that way. Wow, that that's that's spectacular! <laughs> what a wonderful answer, and so lucky to be taught meditation at such a young age, uh, just to have it worked into the natural order of your family and what it means to be in this world is, uh, it seems to be a, a, a true blessing now, now that people have spent so much time trying to recover it as adults, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wasn't brought up by North Americans, so, um, I, I don't say that glibly, mm. but, um, it's a different cultural aesthetic, especially it, it's especially from my father that, that I received that, uh, learning. Right. Right. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your father. He was Anglo-Indian. He was his family was in India for six generations. Um, people now think of Anglo-Indian as somebody of like a, a mixed marriages, and I can't honestly tell you that whether that's true or not because I don't have a full genealogy. Um, but he was definitely um, not British in the way we you would normally think of British, and uh, was someone who was, um, Carl, you had asked me, uh, you know, when we were pre preparing this, um, if I had a silence hero, and I said, no, I can't think of anyone. But actually, I would say my dad was my silence hero. And um, he was somebody who was completely devoted to making the world a just place. And I, I learned from him that a contemplation was about that. He was an artist, he was a philosopher, and he was a teacher. Um, he came to India, uh, sorry, came from India after uh, independence of India. He was there maybe 15 years after that or something like that um, and came to Canada he had been a tree, a, a tea planter there as a young man, and came to Canada to uh, go to forestry school at University of British Columbia, which was then, I guess, a, a big school. But his life was really devoted to social action, and in the end, mentoring a lot of people. He grew up in mostly in Shimla, in the north of India, and Mahatma Gandhi was there, you know, regularly. And he was a huge influence on my father. He was in relationship with the Quakers, with the Dukbors, which are a kind of a communist or a commune dwelling, pacifist Christian community from Russia, uh, sent to Canada by Tolstoy. He funded it. Where we grew up in the southeast, uh, in southeast British Columbia in the mountains, it was a place where people went to try and live an alternative life. So there were draft dodgers there, there were back to the landers, there were communes, people trying to live in alternative ways. And my father was kind of in relationship, both my parents, and with all those people. And there was a um, 
he was instrumental in in uh, the multiculturalism movement in Canada. Um, he was into all kinds of things. He he started the first hospice society in the area, the first arts council, the first uh, wow. you know even parks and trails. Uh, he was a, mm. an avid naturalist. He was kind of a Renaissance man after his time, you know. An incredible inspiration. Of course, we differed on small points all the time. But, uh, you know, in retrospect, as a, an adult and after he died, I I realized that he was sort of the one person I felt I who could understand what I was trying to do. And and I think we had this kind of very powerful relationship um, about uh, seeking truth. Dare I say that as an academic truth? Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he certainly thought of it that way. Beauty, peace, justice. Mm. He is much more inclined towards social action uh, in an overt way than I am. Uh, I I'm more of a writer. Uh, my sister Teresa uh, got that social action thing from him. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was remarkable, and and when he died, he was he was sick, and and in the last two weeks of his life, all these young men and older men by that time um, were gathering around him, like at his feet, and it was really astonishing for me as his daughter to watch this of how many people he influenced in this incredibly powerful way. Hmm. He didn't publish things he painted a lot of paintings but his world was large while also being uh very localized and i growing up in that environment i i really learned the power of being here now you know mm-hmm. um of not trying to um extend yourself into space farther than is necessary. We are all humans in our local space and we can spread this beauty and and learning and uh, presence right here where we are. We don't have to be across the planet, you know, mm. or whatever, <laughs> although here we are on Skype. <laughs> right. That's kind of funny as we're talking on Skype. Yeah. Yeah. I, Paula, I, I love what you said about your first encounter with silence too. It, it kind of reminded me of the Beatles golden slumbers, um, (laughs) you know, just this idea of being wrapped in light and, and in the silence. And you use such beautiful language in your book, the monk cell to describe silence and to express it. And I wonder if your encounters with silence beginning so early created this extensive vocabulary to keep describing silence I love it when you say their quiet seemed to blossom through the space and you say beautiful things like this about about silence and just it offers such beautiful angles for different people to approach and understand and come at it. And do you think that because you were encountering silence at such a young age that that's something that gave you this ability to expand your vocabulary about silence and describe it in different ways? That may be. I I haven't thought about it, but I, I think that the thing that's most important is the fact that it's a kind of an experiential part of my life and has been forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing I've had to be careful about in writing this book is not to kind of project my own experiences mm. too heavily onto other people. Mm. So 
this book, in a sense, was was uh, written from uh, and researched because I'm trying to understand what uh, the world I came from, which is not necessarily mm-hmm. what anthropologists normally do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I've written other things and I've worked in other communities, and this was kind of a driving desire to kind of put some kind of I don't know, not just intellectual, but but also experiential, phenomenological language around this profound world that I know. Um, my my world that I grew up with it may be slightly different from um, many of the people, but it's it's strongly related. And I think the whole point of the book is that this is a diverse kind of movement, and it has room for all these things. And I think I'm very much part of it, you know, about the language of silence. I never know what I'm going to write, right? Mm. (laughs) Many writers don't until they're actually writing it. And my practice of writing uh, these passages was I always meditated before I wrote. Mm. And part of it was I would go back and reread my my, um, ethnographic field notes and such. But a lot of this has to do with sense memory, mm-hmm. where I I go back in my mind, meditate, and then enter in um, through memory into those places where I was doing research. And that allowed me to give language to these nonverbal situations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, think, I think that's very helpful to hear you articulate that it's a, a phenomenological kind of exploration. I think that that really does resonate with me, what you seem to be doing in the book. And and to be grounded in sense memory, again, uh, is, a, is a wonderful way of articulating that as well. And so I, I think my question that I, I have is, how can ethnographic work help us understand silence? I think it can help in a number of ways. I mean, one of which is just people knowing that there are others out there doing it and mm. that it's, you're not alone. Right. Which, you know, I think through social media and things, people are beginning to know that or or know that already. But a lot of people have come to me and just said, wow, you know, I had no idea this was, I'm part of this movement. And I'm like, yes, you are. And it's big. Right. Um, you right. know, I'm only accessing it through a number of venues, although I was told that doing an ethnography of silence and contemplation wasn't really possible. I think that it was because I had such a strong understanding of it from a personal perspective, mm-hmm. I, I I could feel confident that there was a way to do it. Mm-hmm. I didn't always know exactly what was um, what I was going to do. But I, I could see it. It's like I had a vision. And uh, often when I'm doing a big writing project, there's kind of this amorphous vision. And, and the pieces come together into it, like building a puzzle almost. The, the sort of real details of what I'm going to say aren't necessarily there from the beginning. They come in the act of writing. But ethnographic fieldwork, I mean, the thing about it was I had to spend a lot of time doing this. You couldn't do this uh, study in a year. 
There's no way, especially if you were coming at it as a brand new person. You know, I, I already had a huge, like years and years of experience, lifetime of experience in this world. Maybe not always meditating, but but having been brought up in this world. I, I say in my book, I did about three and a half years <laughs> because... I, I, okay, don't tell anybody this, but it's because my uh, I had to have sort of permissions to do the field work. But in reality, uh, I started working in some of these monasteries and introducing myself and coming in in 2005. Officially, my field work started in 2009. Officially, mm. it ended in 2012. But I... I kept going as I was writing through even through 2014. And then of course it doesn't end. Um, I mean, I don't feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not madly writing notes or anything anymore, but I was at the time. And just to give a kind of a picture of what it was like as an ethnographer to go away to a monastery. So I worked in, in about six monasteries and convents and then a whole lot of retreat centers. Right. Plus, I was working with uh, individuals who wrote journals for me uh, from uh, because I, the one thing I couldn't have access to was how people lived this life at home. Right. So um, say I went to a Trappist monastery and be up and out of bed, you know, kind of 3.30 in the morning, walking down to uh, to the chapel. And then I'd have a whole day, uh, depending on what was going on. You know, there may, if it's a retreat, I might have been meditating multi- multiple times a day, uh, engaging in kind of seminars and things. And so, you know, when would it take you to about 9.30 at night? And then everybody would and much of this would be in silence, of course, which I love. Um, <laughs> and then uh, at the end of the day, I'd, I'd be up till one in the morning or midnight or something writing my notes from memory. Because, I mean, sometimes like in seminars and things, I could take notes while I was there. But a lot of this was I'd, I'd jot down a word as a mnemonic device so that I could remember afterwards. And then I'd have to recreate the day in in my notes so you know it was a joke in my family because i had two small children while i was doing this that after being away for two, two weeks i would come home and i would immediately get the flu <laughs> i was exhausted but um it was incredibly intense as an ethnographer it's already very intense as a practitioner somebody taking part in these things mm-hmm. But it was an incredible privilege to do this work. I just, I, 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 I it worked out um, far better than I imagined. People were incredibly gracious and hospitable to me. I mean, there were a few situations. Of course, these are very private places, and and it, one has to be very uh, aware of of. Uh, not overstepping one's boundaries. A couple of times I made mistakes, sadly, but luckily monks told me. And yeah, it was an it was a very intense ethnographic research experience, and I loved it. 
it's interesting to say because you hear you talk about like memory as a mnemonic device, et cetera. It, that just it's a monastic practice. It's it's kind of interesting to see as I'm I'm thinking you say that, and I'm thinking of Mary Carruthers' work on memory, the Book of Memory, and and how ancient medieval monks would use memory as a way into kind of a silent space, and then to let words come out. And you're doing that work in and of itself, right there. So, kind of fascinating. Isn't that funny? <laughs> Yeah, it is definitely a contemplative form, and and I I I personally feel like um, scholarship, reading, and especially writing is a, a contemplative practice. It isn't always, of course. Right. You know, like meditating isn't always contemplative either. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, in a sense, if you know what I mean, um, they're kind of uh, deepen, deepening degrees of this way of being of that spaciousness and openness and and uh, apophatic presence, if you like. And it does seem kind of um, contrary to usual understandings of what scholarship is, because there is in kind of popular mind this separation between uh, the rational and the, the non-rational. And I personally think that's totally bogus. I agree. <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, it can be like that if you want it to be, mm. but it isn't essentially like that. Mm-hmm. It, uh, one can use anything as a contemplative practice. And uh, I mean, that's the, the main point of this book is that people are trying to train themselves in everyday life as contemplatives in every action and every way of being, uh, you know, not that every one is always successful One that we're human. We can't. But this is like a, a way of training oneself to to live contemplatively in the world. I mean, the monks know that through their aura et labora. And uh, this is what this movement is trying to teach. Is uh, And scholarship is not outside of that. Paula, I'm curious if you could kind of just give a synopsis of your book and really the origin of what kickstarted your desire to write it in the first place and research it? Church uh, was not a big factor in my life, really, as a child. I, I mean, we were doing all this at home, mostly. We did go to church occasionally. My father was, was the most loyal in that way, I guess. But no, there's something else. And uh, I just had really, really strong experiential moments around connectedness with the divine from early early childhood as long as i can remember and you know if i had grown up in a different time and place i'm quite sure i probably would have gone to a monastery but i didn't really know about that world where i grew up um i i grew up with hippies i grew up with loggers (laughs) Um, and, you know, artists and, you know, regular people. And the thing that drew me was first dance, actually. Dance and then ultimately uh, music and theater. And my first career is actually in theater. Mm. I I became a a designer. I wanted to be an actor. Of course, everybody does. But uh, that wasn't my calling, ultimately. But I had, again, this kind of a vision of something I was after. And it was, a, you know, from the age of 12 or 13, 
this idea of doing ritualistic theater. And again, if I had been in another time and place, I would have just been doing ritual, you know, not not thinking about doing ritualistic theater. But it, it had very much to do. I mean, one of the chapters of my book, it's about the formal ritual. Mm-hmm. It, it, the subtitle, what is it? It's silent stillness, movement, sound. And that's really what I was after through through the theater mm-hmm. and was rather disappointed um, that I couldn't find what I was looking for, although I knew it existed because I had read about uh, different kinds of um, European ritualistic theater and, and experimental theater, and I've seen quite a bit since then. But um, I eventually moved towards, uh, I wanted to study either philosophy or anthropology, ended up st- studying anthropology because I didn't want to be confined to European models. Hmm. And that was where I found the great Victor Turner. Yes. Um the ritual studies expert, and he was speaking my language. Mm-hmm. He, he was speaking my language, and he got you know some of his language from the the French anthropologist Arnold Van Gennep. Um, and this is all about the rites of passage and liminality, and how this experience of connectedness with people and all things is actually a human capacity. Mm-hmm. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not just you know, one group of people or this group of people, it's it's something that happens all around the world and has through time as far as we know. And this is what I was looking for through silent stillness, movement, sound, gesture, and voice. And I was kind of uh, entranced by, by Turner. That's where it began, where um, from this just, you know, I, I hope it's not too heady, but, you know, this is something that I've been seeking from childhood experience. It's not right. mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. not like just an intellectual thing. I'm trying to understand this human capacity for oneness. And, you know, yeah. I, I, when I'm talking to people about this, it, you know, the idea of I'm one with the universe, mm-hmm. it, it sounds so corny, right? But actually... From an anthropological perspective, this is actually something that really happens all the time. It is a human capacity. And I wanted to understand that better. Um, mm-hmm. So this is, you know, this is all just one big, elaborate personal journey. Um, <laughs> well, I want to understand yeah. myself in context with other human beings. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Paula, I, I just want to say I'm so drawn to your inclusive language and the way you keep pointing to that interconnectedness and rootedness between Mm -hmm. all of us. And I think that is just like, it gives me chills every time you kind of, you point back to that constantly. And that's beautiful. And you do that in your writing also, but yeah, it's just, it, it shows a very clear hope and desire for, uh, I would imagine what you hope for people to get from your work and what would you want people to get from your, for, if they were to read your book, what would be your hope for them to walk away with? I think I'm always after trying to understand the beauty of humankind. Hmm. We have lots of messages about how awful we are <laughs> and, and we can't uh, ignore that. And I wouldn't want to, but I honestly think we need to embrace how wonderful humans are alongside all the social activism. Um, and in fact, Understanding our beauty is the basis for which we can try to make change for the better. Uh, it's not yes. about, I, I mean, 
telling ourselves how awful we are is not going to make us any better mm. uh, and able mm. to uh, empower our capacity to change things that really need change. So that's my number one. I'm my father's daughter. He was an artist. And I, I think of my work as, as an artistic endeavor, in a sense. I mean, I came from the fine arts originally. And, and another little tiny thing is to kind of get away from the that oppositional understanding of groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote this book as an anthropologist trying to explain it to people who don't understand this world at all. And I don't know how many people might possibly read it, but um, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a, a priest. I'm not uh, I'm not anybody who's kind of uh, my my kind of professional identity isn't anything to do with being on the inside of this world. And it's about communicating. That's a classic anthropological uh, task is to communicate a world to people who are completely outside of it. And that's what I've tried to do. And um, part of the method of doing that was grounding it in physical sensation. And I have to say that one of the people that uh, really helped me see that was Cynthia Bourgeau, who is um, a a teacher of this world who um, I followed as a researcher. Mm -hmm. So she's always asking her students um, to, you know, how does it uh, manifest in the body? And it was like, of course, this is how we communicate to other people. It's not about metaphors necessarily, although metaphors can be helpful, but metaphors are very culturally specific. And so I talk about uh, this is, in a sense, uh, a kind of anthropology of the senses. Mm. It's a phenomenological anthropology. Mm. It's It's an anthropology of performance, and it's an anthropology of ritual. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. Paula, I'd like to circle back to, and and you really were just touching on this, but part of what I'm hearing as you're speaking is this wonderful kind of dynamic that seems to undergird not only your writing, but maybe even just your own story of the relationship between silence and ritual or silence and performance, silence and story, um, silence and art. Uh, we're all poetry geeks on this um, podcast, so that's something we talk about a lot is, you know, how do you find silence in language? And one thought I had as I was listening to you speak, and my, my connection to the world that you, you were exploring or are exploring is through, I'm a monastic associate of one of the Trappist monasteries uh, here in, in uh, I'm in Georgia, so here in the American Southeast. And Something that that I have run into, and also with with my work, because I now lead retreats as well, 
is that there seems to be, at least in, in some segments of the community, almost a resistance to ritual and liturgy. Say, let's, let's, let's gather for 20 minutes of centering prayer and the room is full. But then you say, well, let's gather for 20 minutes of reciting the Psalms. And suddenly 20 people have to go check their, their you know, Facebook page. And so I'm curious if you ran into that in, in your work or even in just your own personal journey, that persons who embrace silence, sometimes it's like they don't have a language of ritual or they resist the language of ritual that is provided for a variety of reasons. And I, I certainly understand the critique of, of Christian liturgy as being patriarchal or being Eurocentric. You know, I, I think some of those, those critiques are important and, and the conversations need to happen. But, and, and I'm, I'm not even sure where I'm going with this question, but I think I've just had this intuitive sense for some time now that the relationship between silence and ritual is a necessary relationship. Not necessarily silence and religious liturgy, although religious liturgy can be a very meaningful ritual. But, um, but I, I just would like if, if, you know, if you could reflect with us on if you've experienced people who resist ritual, and if, you, if so, do you have any sense of what might be driving that in our, in our world today? I think there are a lot of people who have been very badly hurt in church context or other religious context, and the associations are strong. I honestly think it's a very long journey for many people. And reciting the Psalms or doing some other kind of ritual act that has an association, it may be a long time coming back to it to see its value. It's interesting because I'm not speaking so much as an anthropologist because most of the people that I worked with appreciated litur uh, literature, uh, liturgy, sorry. But in my personal life with friends and things there, I have a lot of friends who are um, runaway Catholics, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> who took up Buddhism or whatever and, and found, lo and behold, that uh, after some years in this or in that uh, ritual or um, religious organization that they find some of the same things. Mm. Yes. I mean, these are human organizations um, and they are, they are far from perfect. I don't think the Catholic church or any church are, are the only culprits in, in this world. This is a part of uh, what, what religion as a, a social institution is. It can be corrupt. It can, it can lose its way. It can miss the point. And something like the, the Roman Catholic church is incredibly diverse. And, and if you've been brought up as a, as a Catholic and you've you've been hurt badly, well, you may not see that diversity. It may take you a long time to come back and find the 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 gemstones that are there. And I, that's one of the things I loved about this research was that so many of these people were people who had rejected Christianity and went off and learned in other uh, religious venues and then realized, ah, uh, actually, I see that there are there is some of this world right here in in uh, my own homeland, and mm. I think also the Protestant uh, Reformation has something to do with this kind of uh, being a bit uh, suspicious of ritual. 
that you know it, it can be overladen with the importance being on the ritual rather than it as a kind of uh, uh, a method, um, a technique, a way of surrendering yourself. It, it, it's about uh, you know getting it right and having the tablecloth just so. And is anybody going to you know put your toe out of line and you're being judged? Well, my experience, I I luckily didn't grow up in an environment like that, so I, I don't feel any any kind of boundaries or negativity. I I see ritual as the same way I see dance. You know, I yeah. that it that it's it's this incredible act of moving through space in connection to whatever you want to call that this thing that is not even outside of yourself but is is you in relation to you know i went the other day to um uh, a performance of young uh you know pre-professional dancers at a local dance school it's absolutely fantastic this school um, really trains them beautifully people from all over the world young dancers um, coming to the school in Vancouver called Arts Umbrella and you can feel the energy of this beautiful interconnectedness this this kind of sense of unison and complementarity and the power in the body and and this to me is the very same uh, source of ritual now what you think is doing it does matter of course but i really don't make a a, a, a really um a strict segregation between those worlds and i i suppose some people would find that kind of blasphemous but it's really about this bodily visceral interconnectedness with the thing I call the divine. And I don't know what other people necessarily call it. What is happening on the inside does matter, you know, what you think is happening. But there's also something beyond our own minds and our own intentions that connects us all. That despite us, there is this incredible beauty. Despite us. I mean, yes, because of us in part, but mostly despite us. So when you see a dance that is just synchronized and it, you can feel it off the stage, to mm. me that's the same as having a truly contemplatively um, uh, undergirded ritual. Mm -hmm. You know, it's coming oh. from the same human place. I'm mm. speaking as an anthropologist, of course, not as a theologian. <laughs> what I'm hearing you say, and the, what I thought found so powerful about your book, what the the best things that spoke to me and like, and what you're speaking to me now is speaking to my heart is you're plumbing and delving into bodily knowing, you know, and, and you said at the beginning of the conversation that the Academy has this kind of, it has, it's very good on head knowing. It's very good on what's going inside and words and ideas. And you found a way through anthropology, through ethnography, through, through performative knowing, ritual, and, and saying that there's something going on here. And I love the discussion of dance and movement and this idea that it's, it's a cooperative knowing. It, it's, more, it's a knowing more than. It's not just knowing with me. It's knowing I can only know this way if I plug in and flow. I think that's part, even you mentioned in the chapter that you said you're, that you thought was the core chapter on ritual and everything. You talk about uh, bodily flow or something is one of the subheadings in there. And, and I do a lot of research on epistemology and about flow 
and knowing and thinking. And it's about this engaged, I, I've, I've come back to body. And, and I hear in your language something very similar to the kind of language I read when I read David Abram, The Spell of the Sensuous, uh, and this idea of there's a, a way of knowing the world that is just, it doesn't, and as you said before, it doesn't have to be heady. It's this attempt to be really, what it means to be a human being is to know through the body. And we say that stuff a lot, but we don't spend a lot of time really articulating that in a lot of circles. And I, so I really appreciate your work. Thank you. I think the way to articulate is to do it. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, but in a sense, I, I, I want to just put a little cautionary note in there because I don't mm -hmm. think that the intellectual knowledge is, is, is somehow lesser. No, absolutely um, not. And I don't think you intended that, but right. just to be clear that bodily knowing isn't better than intellectual knowing they're right. they are sisters right exactly sisters. exactly and 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 in fact they may not even be anything different from each other right. um right. and <laughs> one of the things that's so important about this movement is is that combination of the bodily knowing the unknowing the apophatic side of knowing that is the amorphous and openness uh, and receptiveness and intellectual study. It can all go together. And I have to say here <laughs> that I, I'm honestly not a very uh, good academic because um, <laughs> I, I prefer not to read the tweet. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I should be very careful about what I'm saying because I do read, of course I do, and I read a lot, but I would rather sit with one book for six months than, than read, you know, catch up on the literature, mm -hmm. not a catch up on the literature. That that's a chore to me. Mm. I, although I love to hear people's ideas, of course, and they, and they inspire me and they form me and they help me. But I think I am definitely, uh, a, I'm, I would, dare I say, I would, I'm a contemplative before I'm an academic. Mm. I would rather sit with one really fine work or two, rather than have to read those 50, you know, things in, in a week. Mm -hmm. So, you know, who knows what will happen to me, but I, it's actually a very strong, I guess, an impulse to focus in, focus in while also opening out. Right. And Doing the work that is required of an academic these days, all the administrative work, the teaching, the pre preparation, the keeping up with the literature, the writing, the research, it's not what I signed up for, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I can do it and I enjoy I enjoy teaching. I uh, enjoy the, the having especially the community, but... I'm not sure this is what academia was originally meant to be, and it's not what I want from it. So yeah. I'm I'm currently kind of in discernment about how best to find the balance here. Um, I'm tempted to just go and be a writer. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. I. I well, yeah. I mean, it's the running joke on this podcast that I call myself a recovering academic. Uh, <laughs> that there's a sense that I I think you've articulated it very well for me. Exactly what you said, I I would uh, wholeheartedly agree with you. Let me share just two quotes 
Paula, that I think you might enjoy. And the first one comes from Seneca. And he says, what is the use of innumerable books and libraries if the owner is unable to read them all in a lifetime? A student will be burdened, not instructed, by a crowd of authors. It is much better to devote yourself to a few authors than to lose your way among a multitude. Mm. Yeah, and then you see, this is this is ancient knowledge, and uh, we should know. <laughs> yes, we should. And yes, a, yes. And a more um, more succinct variant of that from Joseph Cassant: Read few books, but meditate on them well. Exactly. <laughs> Paula, speaking of your reading and your um, enjoyment of reading, what authors do you like to sit with? You know, I, I hate to disappoint you, but I, I, I don't have a favorite author. Just terrible. I mean, I, I, I often, when I'm given something to read and I have a million books uh, by my bedside, let me tell you, there are many, many, many books I have left unread. Mm. I have mm -hmm. I've begun them and not finished them. However, every once in a while, something catches me on fire. And mm. I will remember that for my life. Um, I often use books kind of as a tool rather than as a meditation. But when I find a fabulous book... I enter into it and I feel like I'm immersed in this mm. incredible pool. And I, you know, I know it sounds ridiculous, but actually I love the Psalms, <laughs> which is not very, very glamorous of me. And I have a lot of books that people suggest to me to read that are kind of contemplative books. And I, I appreciate them a great deal. But I actually mostly just want to sit in silence. I know that sounds mm. awful. Here I am, academic, mm -mm. and but no, no. but I actually really like not reading. Yeah, <laughs> because it crowds our minds. You know, I. But I, now this is sounds also really silly, but I read um, Thomas Merton's very first book, uh, Seven Story Mountain which is kind of pedantic in a way and 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 a little bit self-righteous and you know it's not the great merton that everyone thinks of but when i read that book i felt like i was transported to another world mm -hmm. and it, 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 i know it's it's he's not at his most sophisticated at his most elegant but there's some passion in there that really was communicated to me mm -hmm. that it was it wasn't about all his very smart knowing or even his very apophatic knowing there was something about the passion of the the human person on the journey that just kind of was like an arrow that came through through to me there's one other medieval writer that i have to say that i absolutely adore and i'm i'm blanking on her name and I'm just looking at ah, Hadavik of Brabant. Mm. You know, I mean, I could I could think up a million little pieces of 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 writing that, um, but I have no one author that has moved me uh, continuously or or repeatedly necessarily. And they can be academics, or they can be um, mystical uh, visionaries, or they can be uh, you know. Probably not tax writers, but um, 
I just feel like there's many, you know, Mary Oliver, I adore. Uh, there's many, many people, but I don't ever kind of focus in on anyone. I, I just feel like people are able to communicate uh, or we're be able to, we are able to hear through them, whether they intended it or not. And, and it, it's just people, just people telling the truth about life hmm. that moves me. And there's nobody in particular. Let me just, just finish up with, I'm, I'm going to quote you, Paula, from your book. Oh. And, and and I'm going to do this. This is not necessarily. This is just a. Um, this is this is just an appreciation. Mm. And you you wrote you were talking about and I can't remember which Trappist monastery you were talking about, but you write. And I quote: Entering the austere Trappist chapel, then edging my way to a side bench up against the brick wall, I moved into another variety of silence. It was dark except for a few starry votives at the tabernacle and icons. The monks, in hooded, ivory-colored habits, sat motionless on wooden benches in the antechapel. Their quiet seemed to blossom through space. A pungent silence, our retreat leader, Cynthia Bergeau, had called it on a previous visit. It had a kind of density, not accidental, but filled with intention and potency. Mm. And of course, Cassidy alluded to that, that same quote earlier. So it's interesting that we both, you know, just, just kind of gravitated to that. But, but I love that you, what I almost was reminded as I read this, I'm reminded of somebody who is gifted about writing about wine. Mm -hmm. And I am not, I'm not a, a professional wine taster. I'm not, I don't write about wine, you know, um, I'm a, I'm pretty good at, is it sweet or is it dry? That's about <laughs> the limit of my ability, but people who are really gifted, you know, and can, and can talk about the ingredients and the type of grapes and, you know, the, the various, you know, bouquet and aroma, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I see a similar depth in your ability not only to enter into the silence, but then to share it with your readers. And I, I'm just saying thank you. Mm -hmm. It was such a joy to read your book. And, you know, as somebody who, and yeah, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but I have written some contemplative writings. And um, and so obviously it's 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 a field that's very, very dear to me. And 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 kind of like you, you know, there, there's so much literature and I just can't keep on top of it all. But I loved your book because it really, by, by taking the anthropological approach, it gave us really a different window mm -hmm. in, into, into appreciating this world. So, so my final word is just to say thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate it. And I, it's been really fun. And thank you for thinking of me to be part of this endeavor of yours. A really good one. Yeah. Thank you for doing it. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing more of your personal story, too, because right. that even gives an additional lens while reading your book. And it's just it's marvelous. Thank you so much for your work and your time. Yes. Thank you so much. And and I'm so glad that you've now joined the community of Encountering Silence. I feel like we can keep learning from you and, and talking mm -hmm. more about what this bodily knowing and ritual is like. It's an important piece that needs to be talked about more. So thank you. Thanks a lot. 
Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, www.encounteringsilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com forward slash Encountering Silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being.